one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to a History of Europe Kibatos podcast. This is part one of the Great War of 1914 to 1918. Introduction and the Treaty of Berlin, 1878. In this final series of episodes in this podcast, I will look at World War I, 1914 to 1918. Because of the scale and importance of this conflict, this will be the longest series by far, 19 episodes in total. We will spend a good amount of time looking into the origins of the war. We're ready to go, so let's begin. Over the centuries, the continent of Europe has all too frequently been afflicted by warfare. From the beginning of historical records, there are stories of conflicts between tribes, dynasties, and more recently, nations. Traditionally, those directly involved in war were a small sector of society, the rulers and the warrior class. Even though regular people going about their normal business were often collateral damage, if their town happened to be under siege or their lands pillaged by an unruly army. The worst case of the devastation of war before modern times was the Thirty Years' War of 1618 to 1648, which for over a generation caused great suffering across great swathes of Central Europe. Two centuries later, the Napoleonic Wars ramped up warfare to a scale never before seen, where all able-bodied men were encouraged or cajoled into putting their lives on the line to fight for the benefit of the state in which they lived, be it a nation, principality, kingdom or republic. But Europe, or the world for that matter, had never witnessed anything like the First World War of 1914 to 1918, or Great War as it was known at the time. The previous 99 years had seen relatively few wars, and those which had taken place had been localised and short, perhaps a couple of years, some just a few weeks long. It was hoped that Europeans had found a new way of managing their affairs without the need for mass shedding of blood. There was increasing use of arbitration to settle disputes among nations, 
and the great powers, that is Britain, France, Germany, Russia and Austro-Hungary, worked more frequently together to resolve crises peacefully. Margaret Macmillan, in her book, The War That Ended Peace, writes out the traditional narratives of the First World War by concentrating on the factors pushing Europe towards war, neglect those pulling the other way, towards peace. No ruler in Europe actively sought a large-scale war. All were actively engaged in finding diplomatic solutions to international tensions. The period also saw a proliferation of societies and associations for the outlawing of war. Rich men such as Andrew Carnegie and Alfred Nobel donated fortunes to promote international understanding. The world's labour movements and socialist parties repeatedly urged against war and threatened to call a strike should one break out. Yet the Great War did happen. From 1914 to 18, Europe laid waste to itself with the loss of 9 million soldiers dead, another 15 million wounded, the devastation of much of Belgium, the north of France, Serbia and parts of the Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires. And so the question has been asked ever since, how could Europe have ever done this to itself and the world? In the period leading up to the war, there was a deep sense of foreboding. Numerous political tensions festered, each one threatening to erupt at any moment. There was rivalry between Great Britain and Germany, a naval arms race escalating between them. There was mutual fear and hostility between Russia on one side and the Austro-Hungarian and German empires on the other, and a lingering urge for revenge in France, for her defeat in 1871 to Germany, and for the loss of Alsace and Lorraine. In the year 1911, Italy added to the instability by an invasion of Libya, and the year after, a group of Balkan nations took advantage of weakness in the Ottoman Empire to launch a coordinated set of attacks against the Turks. The fighting in the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 1913 was intense, with battles the largest seen since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. The conflict threatened to overspill and to draw into either Austro-Hungary or Russia, but in the end stayed regional. As before, diplomacy, bluff and brinkmanship averted a more general war, but the next year, on the 28th of June 1914, the infamous assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austrian throne, proved to be the spark that lit the powder keg and that triggered the Great War. Previous episodes of the podcast have described how, after a period of peace following the Napoleonic Wars, conflict renewed between the great powers in the Crimean War of 1854-56 when Russia's ambitions in the ailing Ottoman Empire were curtailed. Soon after, Napoleon III of France, together with the leaders of the Kingdom of Piedmont, took advantage of Austrian diplomatic isolation to wage a war to unite northern Italy. In the War of Italian Unification, 1859-61, 
most of the Italian peninsula came together in a newly founded Kingdom of Italy. The Austrians lost a valuable part of their empire and their influence in the peninsula. In the year 1866, Prussia provoked, fought and won the Austro-Prussian War, thereby ending any chance of an Austrian-based unification of the German states. This was followed by the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, which ended with a humiliating defeat for the French and left a unified Germany as the dominant power in continental Europe, with Berlin as its capital. In 1867, following their defeat against the Prussians, the government in Vienna devised a so-called dualist system in order to incorporate the Hungarian leadership, who demanded the right to a high level of autonomy. Half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was thus administered from Vienna, and the other half from Budapest, with military and foreign matters the prerogative of the Emperor Franz Josef II. Meanwhile in the Balkans, political instability continued, partly as a result of the rise of nationalism. A popular revolt in Bosnia in 1875, triggered by a rise in taxes, was brutally put down by the Ottoman authorities. The year after, political agitators in Bulgaria organised an uprising, demanding independence from the Ottoman Empire. News of massacres of the Bulgarian rebels caused outrage across Europe. The strongest reaction came from Russia, where widespread sympathy for the Bulgarian cause led to a nationwide surge in calls to support their fellow Slavs in the Balkans, a movement known as Pan-Slavism. Also in 1876, a Serbian army invaded Ottoman territory, but they were repelled. The Russians stepped in and demanded autonomy and protection for the rights of Orthodox Christians in Ottoman-held lands in the Balkans, or else threatened war. An international conference was organised in Constantinople, but when the new Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, refused to give in to the demands, the Russians invaded. The Russian armies marched southwards and defeated the Ottomans. When they threatened to reach Constantinople, the Sultan was forced to sign the Treaty of San Stefano, which created an independent Bulgaria, which included nearly all of Macedonia and most of Thrace, and so left the Turks with only a small foothold in Europe. The great powers of Europe were alarmed at the gains of Russia and her allies, and so forced a revision at a congress held in Berlin. The size of Bulgaria was reduced from the previous plans, depriving it of access to the Aegean Sea, and returning part of Thrace, known as Eastern Rumelia, to the Ottomans. The Congress also recognised Serbian independence, along with that of Romania and Montenegro. Bosnia-Herzegovina and Sanjak of Novi Pavar, which is a belt of land south of current-day Bosnia between Serbia and Montenegro, were left nominally under Ottoman control, but from now on were to be administered by Austro-Hungary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Treaty of Berlin of 1878 was an attempt by the great powers of Europe to find a framework for stability in a region with various competing interests, many of them incompatible with each other. In effect, it created two spheres of influence in the Balkans, the Austrians in the west and the Russians, together with their Serb allies in the east. Russian public opinion was outraged since they compared the final agreement with what was agreed at San Stefano, and Panslavism grew in vehemence. Otto von Bismarck concluded an alliance with Austria the following year, expanding it with the inclusion of Italy in 1882 in the Triple Alliance. In the year 1881, Bismarck also renewed the League of the Three Emperors between Austria, Russia and Germany. In the long run, this alliance would be difficult to maintain, given the antagonism between Austria and Russia over the Balkans, but for the time being, it managed to calm tensions. No side, however, was satisfied with the outcome of the Congress of Berlin. The Bulgarians were furious at having been denied the larger territory which they had won in battle, and the Serbians harboured ambitions for their own borders to be expanded to include neighbouring areas inhabited by southern Slavs in areas both under the Ottomans and Austrian control. Austro-Hungary's occupation of Bosnia and Herzegovina created various problems and indeed helped lead, in the year 1914, to triggering war. Indeed, the new province proved to be a liability, upsetting the delicate equilibrium of the Habsburg Empire by bringing under Austrian administration a mixed population including large numbers of both Muslims and Orthodox Serbs. And within Bosnia, the fragile ethnic balance of the province was disturbed by an influx of Catholics. Among the many challenges faced by Vienna was the need to deal with large numbers of refugees. Sporadic violence flared up in some areas, particularly in those parts of Herzegovina for which Montenegro still harboured ambitions. Banditry of various kinds continued to be a problem, but there was no serious revolt against Austrian rule. One reason why resistance was not greater was that many Muslims migrated to Turkey. Misha Glenny in his book on the Balkans describes how Bosnia's traditional feudal structure and primacy of Islam had previously guaranteed the privileges of the ruling class. Quote, So when the Austro-Hungarian occupiers marched into Bosnia 
to announce that all religious faiths would henceforth be treated as equal, the Muslim landowners feared that their power and indeed their cultural world were about to disappear. Their fears were shared by a majority of Muslims, classed as free peasants. They worried that the arrival of Austro-Hungarians would swiftly be followed by the liberation of the Christian serf peasants, who would then be at liberty to compete with their Muslim counterparts for land. Nor Malcolm, in his History of Bosnia, writes that the first few years were the hardest for the new administration. There were huge problems at the outset, such as the need to deal with large numbers of refugees. Sporadic violence flared up in some areas, particularly in those parts of Herzegovina, for which Montenegro still harboured ambitions. Instability continued to plague the Balkans in general. There was a rebellion of Albanians against Montenegro, a Macedonian uprising against the Ottomans and a peasant revolt in Serbia. The Bulgarians were the first government to act against the Berlin settlement. In 1885 they supported an uprising in the city of Plovdiv, which was the capital of eastern Rumelia, a province of the Ottoman Empire in Thrace, and they unilaterally proclaimed the unification of the province with Bulgaria. The Russians who supported Bulgaria militarily were already furious with her ruler, Alexander of Battenberg, for adopting a liberal administration, and as they saw it in St. Petersburg, being ungrateful for having helped secure Bulgarian independence from the Ottomans. Tsar Alexander III of Russia was particularly displeased at the unification of Bulgaria and eastern Romania, and in retaliation ordered all Russian officers and military advisers to leave the country, leaving the Bulgarian army with no officer above the rank of captain. Serbia declared war on Bulgaria in the hope of grabbing territory while the Bulgarians were distracted. But the Bulgarians defeated them at the Battle of Slivnica and used the momentum to launch a counter-attack. The Serbian army was pushed deep into Serbian territory, but Bulgaria was forced to halt its advance after the Austro-Hungarian Empire threatened to intervene on the Serbian side. Then in 1886, the Russians fomented a coup, in the course of which Alexander was forced to abdicate and was exiled. The Chief Minister Stefan Stambolov acted quickly, and the participants in the coup were forced to flee the country. Alexander was able to return to Bulgaria, but his position had become untenable, and he therefore issued a manifesto resigning the throne, and left the country for good. In July 1887, the Bulgarians elected Ferdinand of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha as their new prince. Known as Foxy Ferdinand for his diplomatic skills, he would continue to the country up to and including in the First World War. In the decade after the Serbo-Bulgarian War of 1885, all the Balkan powers had been arming themselves to the teeth, buying up the latest weaponry from Europe's leading arms manufacturers with the loans provided by the British, French and German governments, who were keen to boost exports. Bulgaria bought arms so lavishly that by the mid-1890s a third of the state budget was being spent on the army. The Serbs also spent heavily on the military, resulting in state bankruptcy in 1893, when the government declared itself unable to pay the interest on loans it had taken out. In Greece, things were even worse, where the government declared national insolvency. 
1897, the Greek government launched an invasion of the island of Crete, then controlled by the Ottomans but with a majority Greek population. This occurred after furious crowds in Athens had accused their king, George I, of betraying their national cause by trying to come to a peaceful settlement over the issue. The resulting war was over in just 30 days when the Ottoman forces easily repelled the attack. The great powers of Europe intervened to prevent Constantinople from realising any meaningful gains from the victory and to maintain the Berlin settlement, though the Greeks were made to cede several points along their frontier with the Ottomans. The island of Crete was granted autonomy but was forbidden a union with Greece. This incident demonstrated the determination of the great powers to maintain a status quo in the Balkans and to use diplomacy to discourage hostilities. The Ottoman victory also showed that although a declining power, they were still a force to be reckoned with and highlighted the difficulties that any one Balkan state would face attacking the Ottomans on their own. You've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you like the show and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com stroke history Europe. Thank you for all your support. Another great way of helping is by giving a, a good review on iTunes or wherever you found the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the music today. It was the Moonlight Sonata from Ludwig van Beethoven. Next week, I'll be talking about the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905 to and the Russian Revolution of 1905. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye.